Thank you so much for worshiping with us this afternoon. You know, in the last decade or uh, in the last decade or two, we've experienced, even in the last year or two, we've experienced a political movement that seeks to kind of expose the flaws of individuals that we used to consider heroes. Just in 2020 and 2021 alone, statues of Christopher Columbus, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, Ulysses Grant and Theodore Roosevelt were taken down from prominent city squares and university plazas. In Portland, they probably went too far. In Portland, they even tried to burn down a metal statue of an elk. What the heck, Portland? Like, that's not even a meat eater, right? All right, I digress. So we have to ask the question, like, who do we look up to? Individuals like Jefferson and Washington and Grant They did great things for our country, and they did significantly beneficial things for people of color, but they also owned slaves. So how do we reconcile that? How do we draw the line between who to admire and who to expose as possessing horrible flaws and perpetuating terrible sins? Well, if we had time, we could flesh out answers to that question, and I'm sure we'd eventually kind of land in an intersection that helps us understand the book of uh, Judges. In Hebrew, the word uh, that we translate as judges means chieftain or tribal leader. And the book of Judges, which we're going to start to talk about today, is a collection of stories in the Old Testament about a series of tribal leaders that emerged to lead the Israelites to uh, a season of victory and freedom, but they're victories and they're freedoms that don't last. And none of the judges deserve statues. None are great heroes. They're all tremendously flawed and sinful people. And so I think this begins to give us the answer to our initial question and also introduce us to the point of the book of Judges. All men are flawed. All leaders make mistakes. And if this is true, what model should we follow? Who should we emulate? Who should we try to be like? I think the book of Judges makes the argument that the flaws of our human leaders are ultimately meant to point us towards and build hope within us in Jesus, the ultimate deliverer. I think that's what the book of Judges is all about. So today I want to focus in on the story of Gideon, which is found in Judges chapters 6, 7, and 8. And I'd like to discuss uh, the story of Gideon in three quick parts. In section one, let's just have a very brief introduction to the book of Judges because it's different than almost anything else you would study or read in the Bible. In section two, let's just establish some of the details of today's story, the, uh, the judge, uh, the hero of Gideon. And then um, let's spend most of our time in section three, which is so what? Why is this story in the Bible and what is it meant to teach us? So let's get started, and uh, just for about five minutes, let's talk about the book of Judges and what we have to know about it to make sense of this story that's in it for us. Let's talk about the tone. Let's talk about the genre of Judges. Uh, The book of Judges is very violent. It's uh, ultimately unresolved, uh, and it's it's kind of filled with like cowboy western-like stories. It's the old days. It's the Wild West. It's before Israel was civilized. It's these old, violent stories that don't always resolve themselves perfectly. And when I compare it to a cowboy story, I don't mean like a rated R cowboy movie. Or I'm sorry, it it is like a cowboy uh, rated R movie. It's not. It's not like the ones that you would see on TV. Remember the the cowboy shows from the 50s where the guy pulls out his gun and he shoots the bad guy but it doesn't kill him 
because it's 1950 and it's TV, so the, it just makes the bad guy's gun fall out of his hand. Like, that's not what the book of Judges is like. It's fearsome and it's violent. And there's, there's no book of the Bible that has more people getting their skulls smashed and their hands chopped off. It's just incredibly violent. And that's made to make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. It's made to show us what happens with flawed, violent leadership. I read this story this summer by uh, the, the American author Cormac McCarthy. It's called, called Blood Meridian, and it has one of the most famous and well-written passages uh, that I can, can think of. Uh, and it just talks about, I don't think I have time to read it now, it's, it's, it's talking about this native war party that's descending on these bounty hunters. And it says, A legion of horribles, hundred in number, half naked or clad in costumes, wardrobed out of a fevered dream with the skins of animal and silk finery and pieces of uniform still covered with blood of the prior owners. And it kind of ends with this... The horsemen's faces are gaudy and grotesque with daublings like a company of clowns thinking that death is hilarious, all howling in a barbarous tongue and riding down like a horde from hell. And so when we think of a paragraph like that that's just talking about this, uh, this violent, primitive, uh, marauding group of attackers, I think that helps us step into the book of Judges. That book, Blood Meridian, is famous for three things. It's famous for its biblical language, it's famous for its incredible violence, and it's famous for its villainous leaders. There's no hero in that novel. And all three of those things, of course, are true about the book of Judges. It's got that kind of Old Testament language. It's incredibly violent, uh, and there's really no all-virtuous heroes in it. Hopefully this will help us enter into the story a little bit more as we're talking about the book of Judges. What is the tension, or what is it ultimately about? And the book of Judges is about how Israel has neglected their half of the covenant. God tells them in Judges 2, verses 1 to 2, and then the angel announces to uh, Gideon in Judges 6, 7 to 10, that the reason why they're being attacked by these foreign invaders is because God delivered them from Egypt... He gave them this land. He drove out its prior inhabitants. And all he asked in return was their faithfulness. All he asked in return is that they wouldn't bow down and worship idols. And there in Judges 2, 1 to 2, and there in Judges 6, 7 to 10, there's these reminders that Israel has not upheld their end of the covenant. And there might be some of you here today that could care less about historical events that happened in Israel 3,000 years ago. But again, this is a, a beautiful entry point because it answers the question, does God keep his promises when we are unfaithful? That's why it's in the Bible. Because each one of us has the same question. Is God going to be faithful in my life when I haven't been faithful to him? And so I think that's a beautiful aspect of uh, this story that uh, we're meant to learn about God from. And if you don't normally come to, uh, to church at Big Sky Christian Fellowship, I want to apologize. This is a little bit more of a churchy sermon than we normally have. During most of the year, we, we kind of focus on people that might have stumbled into church for the first time in a while. But from September to November, we don't have as many visitors. And so sometimes I just want to speak to our, our year-round congregation. Regardless of what category of those two that you're in, the good news of judges is that God upholds the covenant even when Israel is unfaithful. God sends deliverers into your life and my life. God intervenes even when we are unfaithful.
That's the beauty of what we see in this very violent, ancient story. The final thing I want to point out here in our introduction is that uh, the author's intent of the book of Judges, again, is not to to lift up these, these men and women, not to make statues of the heroes of Israel, but rather to show us that it's not working. And the final sentence in the, the, the book of Judges, in Judges 21-25, is, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. In other words, we have the story of Gideon, we have Deborah, uh, we have Micah, we have Samson, and uh, there's, there's really exciting elements of these stories. But what the authors are really trying to show us is that it doesn't work, and Israel is just in this dark, violent chaos as a result of the mistakes that their leaders ultimately make. Every leader in the book of Judges fails, and that's how Judges is meant to raise our hope that God is going to send a better leader, which, of course, reading the rest of the Bible, we know comes in Jesus. All right, let's move on to section two, and let's just very quickly refresh ourselves on the details of the story of Gideon. If you're already super bored, I hope you're just reading through Judges 6, 7, and 8 and kind of hearing the story for yourself. It tells us in uh, Judges 6, 14 that Gideon is a weak man from a weak tribe. Those are actually his own words, which shows you that he's kind of a meek and cowardly guy. Uh, God, God says in Judges 6.14 to Gideon, that, uh, an angel says that Gideon will deliver Israel from these invading Midianites, this kind of horde of invaders. But in the very next verse, in verse 15, Gideon doubts God and blurts out that his clan is the weakest and he's the weakest in his own family. Every good story has sort of a surface antagonist or sort of like conflict. And the conflict in today's story comes through these Midianites, these Arabic invaders. Listen to what it says here in Judges 6, verses 3 to 6. It says, Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and they ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land and they ravaged it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So that's sort of why Israel is crying out and asking for a deliverer or a judge at this time. These Arabic invaders have, uh, in most stories in the New Testament and the Old Testament, how do the Hebrews uh, transport themselves? On what animal? Donkeys. Like the donkey is the animal of the Israelites. And now all of a sudden you have hundreds of thousands of invaders coming across the desert on these tall, ferocious fast camels and you can see how they just are overtaken without much hope well wrapping this part up there's two things that the story of Gideon is most famously known for the first is the reduction of soldiers so so after this series of tests Gideon finally feels that God has chosen him to be the one that's going to drive out these invaders and restore Israel uh, to what uh, what God had promised but they had neglected and then we get this kind of uh, aspect to the story here in Judges 7, 4 to 8. The Lord said to Gideon, No, there's still too many soldiers. Take them all down to the water, and I will thin them out for you. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the soldiers down to the water, and there the Lord told him, Separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog laps from those 
who kneel down to drink, and 300 of them drink from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men that lapped, I'll save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept 300 who took over the provisions of the trumpets of the others. This is weird. If you're you're thinking this is weird, I'm with you. This is a strange detail to a strange story. Uh, But it's also giving us a clue as to what we're supposed to learn from it. This reduction of the soldiers will also fit in with the next aspect of the story, which is the clever battle plan. And if you get a chance to read Judges chapter 7, verses 19 to 23, God gives... Uh, Gideon this plan where a bunch of torches are surrounded by these clay pots and all of the 300 soldiers surround this camp of we're told 100,000 soldiers they blow their trumpets they break the pots and when they break those pots now all of a sudden it looks like there's maybe hundreds or thousands of torches and they hear the uh, battle cry of these trumpets and uh, this huge army gets so confused in the middle of the night and they think they're surrounded by so many soldiers that they actually war with each other and kill each other and run and flee. And of course, both of these details hint at God's intent for the story. He wants to demonstrate his power in the contrast of our weakness. He doesn't want Israel to attack and be successful with 50,000 soldiers. He winnows them all the way down to 300 And he comes up with this strange battle plan so that when the Midianites are finally driven out, everybody knows that it was through God's strength, it was through God's plan, it was through God's provision, and not the strength of the Israelite army or not because of the greatness of Gideon. So all that to say, we just summarized three uh, kind of famous chapters of the Bible uh, in about 10 or 11 minutes. And now we get to the so what. What does God want us to take from this very ancient, strange, violent story? There's four points in the sermon notes, but I'm just going to uh, chop that down to three. I think there's three things that we can learn from Gideon's failures that are going to be super relevant in our day-to-day life. Let me encourage you with these three. The first thing this story is meant to tell us is that ideal leadership avoids the trappings of idolatry. Okay, let's talk about that. Gideon doesn't pass the test, but his failures are supposed to show us that ideal leadership, the kind of leadership that God wants out of each one of us in our schools, in our workplace, in our friendships, in our marriages, in our parenting, God wants our leadership to overcome and resist the trappings of idolatry. Let's talk about that a little bit. This whole point is actually foreshadowed in the names that are given for Gideon. In the original uh, story, in the original Hebrew, Gideon is actually given two names, and this is pretty common in the Old Testament. Remember, Israel had neglected God for quite some time when this story starts, so Gideon actually has a pagan name. He has a a non-Hebrew name that was given by his parents because they must have been kind of turning their back on God. And the, the translation of his pagan name is this. Baal, which is the god, the, the, the idol in the story, uh, the false god. So his pagan name is Baal contends or draws in. But then he has this Hebrew name Gideon, which means to hack down. And of course, the story starts with him finally feeling empowered enough by God where he goes to the, uh, the pole of Baal and he hacks it down, he hacks down the idol. And so just in those two names, we already get a sense of the tension of the story. Which of those two names is going to be true about Gideon? 
Is he going to contend with idols? Is he going to get drawn in by idols? Or is he going to take his Hebrew name and is he going to chop down idols? That's sort of the tension of the story. And that's the question that we're supposed to take as well. Are you going to be somebody who chops down idols? Or are you going to be somebody who gets drawn into idols? And we should probably just give a quick definition. I think an idol is just anything that comes in between us and God. If there's something that keeps you from coming to church, if there's something that just takes your attention or your worship away from God, in some sense, that's an idol that the story is speaking out against. I should point out that the story of Gideon doesn't end well. In uh, Judges 8, verses 22 to 27, it tells us how he responds to this great victory. We all know the story of the trumpets. We all know the story of the, the torches. Well, how does Gideon's story end? It tells us in Judges 8.31 that he has 70 sons and multiple wives, right? And I think that shows us that he didn't respond to victory in an ideal way. It also tells us that he takes down all the gold that he plundered from the Midianites because they had earrings and they had decorations on their camels, and he melts it down and he makes a suit of armor. He makes a breastplate, which he and his family and his whole region than worship. So I think you can see the irony of this man who's called to lead his people and his region away from worshiping idols. He has this great success only for the story to end with him and his family and the region worshiping idols again. So we consider that he has those two names. When we consider the, the ironic end to the story and the way things end, I think we can all agree that Gideon's leadership, like it's a failure, right? They would be ripping down his statue in Portland. We're not supposed to want to be like him. We're supposed to learn from him. And I just want to challenge you guys. And again, I'm, I'm sort of speaking to the people in the congregation that I know. If you're new here today, I, I don't know you. I don't know your choices. I don't know your habits. Uh, please understand that uh, this is a part of the uh, sermon that I'm only offering up to those that I know. And my question for those of you that I know well is, what are your idols? What are the things that come in between you and God? And I've got a list that I would suggest from my experience and from things that I've observed. What are the things that keep you from coming and worshiping on Sunday afternoons? Skiing? Hiking? Work? Camping? Family visits? Home maintenance? The thing that all the things on those lists have in common is that we're making the mistake of Gideon. We're losing God in the good things that he's given us, right? Gideon gave, uh, God gave Gideon that victory, and, and, and then the gold caused Gideon to turn from God and instead get caught up in the good things that God had given him. I'll give you guys a personal example that's going to make you think that I'm super petty, but it's football scores. There's been times in church during just an incredible worship song that I've snuck out my phone to try to look at a football score, right? I'm just as guilty as anybody else of losing God in the good things that he's given us. And um, I'm not trying to be legalistic and I'm not trying to make people feel guilty. I'm just trying to extract relevance from the story, right? We're called not to be a Gideon. We're called not to lose God in the good things that he's given us. In Matthew 4, 9, the devil tells Jesus that he'll give him all the kingdoms of the world if Jesus is just willing to bow down to him. And in Matthew 4.10, even in a tremendously weak state after 40 days of not eating, 
Jesus resists and he says to, to the devil, you shall not worship, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. And in this we have an example far greater than Gideon, right? Like this is the example that we've been waiting for. This is the example of somebody who's perfectly resisted the trappings of idolatry. So as we start to wrap up here, I just want you guys to reflect on our story and not to make the mistakes that Gideon makes. Turn to the victory and the example that Jesus gives us and that Jesus has promised to help us uphold. Living in Big Sky is an incredible blessing. The people that are here are, tend to be the best at what they've done. Don't lose God and the good things that he's given you. Don't make the mistake of Gideon because ideal leadership resists the pull of idolatry. The second uh, thing that I want to point out is this. The relevance from this story is that ideal, it's the story is teaching us that ideal leadership trusts God's word without silly tests and excessive caution. Okay? I promise I'm wrapping up here. Ideal leadership trusts God's words without silly tests and excessive caution. There's kind of this funny exchange in uh, chapter 6 where an angel directly addresses Gideon and he calls him mighty and he promises Gideon future victory. But then three different times Gideon kind of dismisses this and doubts and he goes on and he requests from this angel and he requests from God three different tests. The first time is he gives him this offering and he, he wants to see what will happen and the, it seems like the angel burns it in fire. The second test is he puts a wet piece of, he, he puts a piece of cloth on the ground that's wet. He wants it to be wet if it's on the dry ground and that happens. And then the third time he says, God, if you really want me to do this in the morning, I want this cloth to be dry despite the ground being wet. So Gideon, despite talking to this angel, despite hearing from God, he still wants these assurances. He still wants test after test. And I think there's humor in the Bible, and I think this is an example, right? The angel greets Gideon by saying, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. And then the mighty man of valor goes on to request three different reassurances that that is really God speaking to him. Let me give a, a quick illustration. Friday I, Friday, I was in a car for a couple hours with a friend of mine. He's a great guy. Uh, I like him a lot. And I would just describe him as, as the most non-churchy guy in Big Sky. All right? You probably have a friend like that, too. Very, very non-churchy. And there was a time or two in the conversation that I just wanted to bring up something from the Bible, something beautiful and encouraging about God. And there's been times in the past when I've been in a conversation with somebody and I've thought about bringing up something from the Bible and I've just said something like, God, internally, if you really want me to bring God into this conversation, give me a sign. Have the person ask about it. You know, have, have some song on the radio. Give me the assurance that that's where you want me to take the conversation. So anyway, I'm having this conversation with this non-churchy friend of mine and there were a couple times when I just felt there was something that I could say from the Bible that would be very encouraging to my friend. And I started to internally ask God for a sign if he wanted me to bring God into the conversation. And then I realized, Scott, stop being a Gideon, right? Stop asking for silly assurances for something that you know you're supposed to do. And Mark 16, 15, Jesus says, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. 
right? In other words, God has already spoken. He's already given me the answer to that question. I don't need to be a Gideon and ask for assurance after assurance after silly test after silly test. If we know something to be true, good leadership is trusting that God has already given us the answer to that question. So I just brought up a couple beautiful aspects of faith and who God reveals himself to be in the Bible, and I think it went really well. And I just give that as an illustration of our second point, which is that the story of Gideon is meant to teach us that ideal leadership trusts and obeys God's word without needing a lot of tests. All right, final point. The final point is this. And I think it's the most beautiful one of the whole story. Final point is this. God uses us Gideons who fail test one and two. Right? If test one is that ideal leadership resists the pull of idolatry, and if the second point is that ideal leadership trusts and obeys God's word without tests, what's, what's the great part about the this, this story of Gideon? The great part is that God uses Gideon even though he fails Point one and point two. And so as we wrap up, I just want to encourage you guys this afternoon. Maybe there's been times in your life when you have given in to the pull of idolatry. Maybe there's been times when you haven't trusted and obey, obeyed God's word. And maybe you can relate to Gideon in that regard. God still uses Gideon for great things. God can still do really powerful things in your life. Gideon's a weak individual from a weak family, and maybe you can relate to that. Gideon needs additional assurances from God to do basic things, and maybe you can relate to that like I can. Gideon makes the same mistakes over and over, and maybe an element of that rings true in your life. Gideon messes up his marriages and his family, and maybe you've been less than perfect in those areas. Gideon worships things other than God, and Gideon loses God in the good things that God has done for him. And nevertheless, God still does incredible acts of deliverance through Gideon. And so as our worship team comes forward and wraps up our service with a final song or two, I just want to encourage you with this final point restated. Maybe there's something in your life that continues to come in between you and God. Maybe you're making the same mistakes over and over again. God still uses Gideon for an incredible season of prosperity and freedom in Israel. And if you can relate to some of the mistakes that Gideon has made, I just want to encourage you that God still does incredible things through Gideon, and God will still do incredible things in your life. Let's just think about God's use of Gideon despite his flaws as we wrap up with this final song or two.